Well, I'll try that again. Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. Hey, it is so good uh, to see you this morning. Uh, just a, a praise uh, to see you. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful. If we haven't met, my name is Paul Pretty. I'm the teaching pastor here. And um, man, if you're a guest this morning, uh, you're in good company um, because we're all guests in a sense in this facility this morning, uh, week one. And so just really, really grateful uh, to the Lord uh, for really sustaining us through this process. You know, um, about a year and a half ago, uh, we were in interest meetings at the Delaware campus. And those interest meetings really involved, hey, you know, where are we going to be in Marion? We had this core group of you know, 40, 50 uh, people. You know, if, you, if you count you know, people who are also pregnant, we got our numbers a little bit higher. Um, and, and so we're meeting, and, and I remember each of those interest meetings, I would be saying, hey, we need, we need prayer requests for, for where we're going to meet. And it was just time after time after time and time again, it's like, we're just striking out. We went, we went through 17 different options, and then just nothing. Strike out, strike out, strike out every single time. And I was like, what is happening? And finally, uh, number 18, we stumbled into this place, and it was like, great, we're going to get in on Easter, and you know, I told you all along, we're going to be in on Easter. Uh, last year, that was the initial plan. <laughs> and, um, but man, the Lord has sustained us. And the Lord has knit us together, I believe, as a church, the people of God, through this process. And that is a blessing. It's an absolute blessing. And I'm so thankful for these 51 weeks we've been gathering together on a Sunday morning. Next week is, is a year of gathering together here in Marion. And, and I do really love this facility, though. I love this facility for multiple reasons. I, I love it because of just how, I believe, we, that, that this is a team effort, this place. And it's been a joy to be a part of and a joy to see and a joy to see so many giving their nights and their weekends and their evenings to make this happen. So thank you so much for that. I love this place because I believe it helps us live out our vision as a church. On these windows, it says we want to be a place where no one walks alone. And that's, a, that's an ambitious vision. It's one that we're going to fall short in. It's one that we're going to have to continue to strive to try and live out. But it's a vision I believe in. Because we all need someone to, to walk alongside of us. We all need someone to, to be with us. We all need someone there. And that vision is very much meant internally, right? We, we, we live that out through Sunday morning worship and gathering, but we also live that out through the context of life groups during the week. But it also, I think, has an external missional focus as well. A church where no, no one walks alone, all of a sudden, so, so as we sit here on Sunday mornings, we're going to hear a lot of traffic. Right now, it's quiet. It's amazing. But we're going to hear sirens. We're going to hear traffic. And as we do, personally, I've been reminded as I've worked in this building that there are, there are thousands in the city who are walking alone. There are thousands in the city who are driving down this road every single day who are walking alone. And as they drive by, Lord willing, they would see this place and say, hey, maybe I want to visit someday. And Lord willing, that would lead to them encountering who Jesus is, having their eternity changed, having their life changed, having their family changed, have somebody to walk alongside them. We are at the heart of this city, church. The absolute heart of the city. I don't think you can get more downtown than this location and thousands upon thousands of people literally drive by every single day. Would we, Lord willing, reach those people so that they don't have to walk alone? So that they know Jesus. I love this facility because Marion is hard. Marion's a difficult place, as everywhere is. Everywhere is broken. Everywhere is hard. But I think sometimes our city's difficulties, our city's brokenness, is maybe a little bit more visible than other cities. 
what I really love about this, this location, part of our strategy as a church is we want to walk alongside people doing wonderful work already in the city. We don't want to come in and reinvent the wheel. We want to partner with ministries doing fantastic work already. And the way we do that, yes, we, we par- partner corporately sort of as a church, but we partner through our life groups. That our life groups would own these partnerships. And what I love about standing here is that about a block that way is Voice of Hope Pregnancy Center. And so as people come in on a Sunday morning, women who are walking alone, women who are experiencing unwanted, unplanned pregnancies, we can walk alongside them and say, hey, we love you, we care for you, this is Jesus, you need to worship him, let's walk you down the street to help. Literally walk with you to help. About two blocks that way is Grace Clinic, another one of our partner ministries. As somebody walks in and they need medical care, Great, let's pray with you. Let's, let's walk with you. I'm literally going to walk with you down the sidewalk to Grace Clinic to get you the physical medical help you need as we walk alongside of you spiritually. Leap In is in the same building. They provide basic needs. They're building out a homeless shelter. It's absolutely incredible. One of our other ministries we partner with, one of the newer ones called Be the Village. People who run that actually are members of this church. Be the Village walks alongside foster families, supporting them, encouraging them just trying to help them as they pour so much out to those kids. So all that to say, this morning is a celebration because we're in this facility and that's great. But I want, us to remind, I want to remind us what this facility offers us and what this facility will facilitate. Reaching people for Jesus in this city, doing everything we possibly can to ensure people aren't walking alone, doing everything we can to direct them to Jesus, and walk alongside them as brothers and sisters in Christ as we do that. That's why we're here. That's what this building facilitates, not the building. We are the church. The church meets in this facility. So all that to say, I'm grateful and I'm excited. Now, this morning, we are going to study the Bible, and, uh, which is always needed and always, always good. Uh, we've, we're in a series right now called The Ascent. Right? And uh, in this series, what we're doing is we're looking through these different mountaintop moments uh, throughout the Scriptures. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were in Mount Moriah, looking at the temptation of Abraham. Uh, then we were in Mount Sinai last week. This week, we're going to be in Mount Carmel. Uh, we'll get into the Mount of Temptation, uh, Mount Calvary, as we go toward uh, Easter as well. And so this week, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, we'll have the text on the screen for you. I will say we'll read quite a bit of text today. I do want to give us a little bit of context, a little bit of the lay of the land. Uh, 1 Kings, First and Second Kings. Both of these books in the Bible, they're in the Old Testament, they really detail and chronicle uh, the different, different than First and Second Chronicles, but they detail uh, the kings of Israel and of Judah. So God's chosen nation, Israel, has divided in two, we see that in First Kings 11, 12, divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and these books walk through these different kings. And what we see is that the kings of Israel, all but one of them, and he's not all that great, they're all evil. They all do evil inside of the Lord. The kings of Judah, a lot of them do evil inside of the Lord. There's a couple good ones here and there, but a lot of them do evil in sight of the Lord. And so where we're going to jump into the text today is when a guy named Ahab is the king of Israel. And the text says that he did more evil than anybody. It's a bad dude. Leading God's people. And he's setting up these, these altars. He's, he's leading the people to worship a false god called Baal. That's what's happening. And so as a, as a result of that, there's God's prophet, Elijah. He's with God. He's walking with God. He's the voice of God. 
as this people is far away from God. And Elijah prophesies that there's going to be this incredible drought, and there is. And for three and a half years, there is drought, there is devastation, there is death. And it's difficult, and it's hard. And there's pain. And so as we enter this text, I want us to sort of get into that frame of mind that this is a dark season in Israel. The most evil king Israel has ever had is on the throne. Israel is worshiping a false god. There is death, there is drought, there is hardship. And that's where we're entering into this text. Happy Celebration Sunday morning. Uh, It's going to be great. I'm going to pray for us because the Lord knows we need it. And then we'll dive in, okay? Father, you're wonderfully faithful. And uh, standing and sitting here this morning is evidence of that, uh, as if we need more. Uh, Lord, as we open your word, would you open it to us? God, we need you. We need to know who you are. We need to learn. We need to grow. We need to be, um, we need to be convicted. Uh, Lord, would you do that by the power of your spirit? Glorify yourself. Get me out of the way. Help me teach clearly what your word says. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Kings, beginning in Uh, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, the text says this. It says, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Remember, three and a half years, there's been a drought. Now God says to Elijah, the prophet of God, go to Ahab, the bad king. He says, There will be rain on the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, cut off the, uh, cut off the heads is what happened there, cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Now, fascinating little interaction here. Basically, Elijah needs to get to Ahab. To get to Ahab, he's got to go through a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah loves the Lord, but he serves in the house of Ahab. Sort of weird. Somehow it works out. He's not dead yet. And so Elijah says, hey, I want to go meet Ahab. Um, Obadiah is terrified of that, but eventually Elijah convinces him, hey, if you go to Ahab on on my behalf, you're not going to die. It's going to be okay. So Obadiah gets Elijah to Ahab. Now jump down to verse 17. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? So Ahab's blaming, blaming Elijah for this. You're the reason, Elijah, the people are dying. You're the reason for the drought. This is your fault. But Elijah turns the tables on Ahab. Verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you, you have troubled and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. And so they get to this moment, and this becomes, it's going to be a showdown moment. Elijah says, hey, go get your prophets, 450 of them. Go get the prophets of, of Asherah, another false god, the shrine, altar thing. Go to Mount Carmel, gather all the people of Israel. This is going to be a spectacle. I'm going to be there. And we're going to see who God is. Verse 20 and 21, we get, we get to see What's happening here? So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So you see what's happening here. There's this debate. Who is God? Is that not the most important question we could ever ask? 
And so he says, look, gather the people, and the people are all around, and, and Elijah says, hey, who do you believe in? Is, is Baal God? Is, is, is God God? Right? How long do you go jumping in between these different opinions about who God is? And they respond with nothing. And what that tells us, I think it's easy to judge 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later, whatever we are, history guys, send me an email later, long time ago. But, but I want us to think about this. So interestingly, Baal, the, the meaning of Baal is lord or owner. Okay? It's really a title. And so there was an association specifically with a certain false god. And this particular is a Canaanite deity. And this particular deity, Baal, was, was thought to be responsible for, for storms and rain and fertility. And so while we're thinking, like, how could Israel, God's chosen people, possibly be, be fooled into worshiping a false god? I want you to, again, consider the context here. What's happening? There's been a drought for three and a half years. And so they got to be thinking, well, if God is God... Why is this so hard? Why are people dying? Why has there been no rain for three and a half years? If God is who he says he is, what gives? And now all of a sudden, Ahab, the king, the leader, he decides, hey, I'm going to point people to Baal. Because remember, Baal's the god of thunder, of rain, of fertility. People are dying. You know what the people would be tempted to do? Start worshiping the god that they believed could give them rain. And as people are dying, start worshiping the god that they believed could give them children. God didn't seem to be showing up. Maybe this God will. You see, we have a temptation. It's easy to become a slave to the thing we believe will get us what we want. It's easy to become a slave to the thing we believe will get us what we want. You see, what they were doing, so Baal... Again, means Lord or Master. And so they were saying, if we submit ourselves to Baal, if we submit ourselves to this Lord, this Master, if we become a servant or a slave to this God, he will get us what we want. This is the way by which rain begins to fall, crops begin to grow, fertility once again spreads through all Israel. So I'm going to pick and choose. And church, it's not all that different for us today, is it? We might not worship figurines, or do we? Our worship might look differently. Our idolatry might look a little bit different, but don't we worship the thing that we believe will get us what we want? Maybe we really want comfort. Maybe we really, we really want possessions, and maybe it doesn't look that way, but what we do is to get that comfort, to get those possessions, is we worship money. We become a slave to money. As much money as I can get, as much things as I can get, then the more possessions and the more comfort I can get. Don't we do that? Maybe for some of us, we just really desperately want to feel loved. And so we become a slave. We, we worship a person that we feel is going to give us that love and that satisfaction. We, we devote ourselves to this person thinking that they're going to satisfy our souls. Maybe we, we, we're just longing for some form of, of intimacy, and so we, we, we go to these sources that give us a false intimacy, and we become slaves to them and become rulers over our lives. Maybe we want to feel like numbness. We, we're stressed out. We just want to feel nothing, and so we, we worship. We become slaves to substances. This is how this happens. It's active. It's present. Today, we worship the things we become slaves to the things that we believe will get us what we want. And so that is what's happening here 
in this text. It's a, it's a moment to say, you need to decide, you need to be confronted. Who really is God? And now we see, as the text goes on, they have to come to this moment of deciding. Verse 22, it says this, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. He says this, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. It's a test. Two altars, both have bulls. Baal's prophets, 450 of you, all should be able to do something. If your God sends fire down on your altar, Baal's God. But if my God sends fire down on the altar... God is God. And the people are like, fair, that's fair. So, that's what happens. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves, excuse me, I already read that. Um, Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come, uh, no, I got lost. Wait just a minute, where am I? Here we go. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire in it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Just amazing. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Just mocking them. Sometimes the Bible is funny. Um, verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And again, there's a massive crowd here. Imagine how awkward this. They're just watching these guys. They look crazy, but their God does not answer. Now Elijah's turn, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. Remember how scarce water would have been? This is like the last water in Israel. He's like, look, pour it on the altar. He's about to make fire. He's doing everything he possibly can to prove without a doubt that God is God. What a scene. (laughs) It's <laughs> just, just amazing. Do it once, do it twice. In the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's a gruesome ending. But again, remember the scene. <laughs> all of these people, all of this going on, trench is full of water. Elijah prays to God. After they've been cutting themselves, doing these chants, all these random things, fire comes down, consumes the bowl, consumes the stones, the water's gone, it evap- I mean, just stunning. And the people, they respond and they see that God is God. They fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. So in this moment, God is proving without a shadow of a doubt that he is the one true God. And that comes then with consequences. It comes with a decision point. Because God proved that he really was who he said he was, and that Baal is false and every other God is false, the people had to come to a moment to say, okay, we submit. Like we submit to acknowledging the fact that you are God, that you are who you say you are. He proved it. And as I was processing through, this, processing through this text, it just reminded me of how God proved that he is God ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus. Didn't he prove ultimately that he is God? You see, Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate evidence that God is God. What's amazing is the Apostle Paul actually hinges everything on this. 1 Corinthians chapter. 15, Paul says this, but in fact Christ, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Saying, look, everything hinges on this. If Christ did not walk out of the grave, it doesn't matter. You're still in your sins. And he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. People who have died, they're gone. There's no hope for them. If, If in Christ we have hope, in this, in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Saying, look, if our hope pins on Christ and Christ never walked out of the grave, we, of all people, we're morons. Everything hinges on the cross. Everything hinges on Jesus walking out of the grave. And then he continues on in verse 20. He says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. God is proving in the resurrection of Jesus that he is God. And what that should do, church, is confront us. Are we following that God? Do we know that God? Are we submitting our lives to that God? Because if he is God, and he is, and he proved it in the resurrection of Jesus, then we're all accountable to him. I know many of you know my story, but this is, this is my, my moment. I remember claiming to be a Christian for so long, claiming to walk with Jesus for so long, and yet at the same time blatantly living in overt sin, knowingly, and saying, it's fine justifying it over and over and over again. 
I said God was God, but I did not follow God. I did not submit myself to God. I was living actively in overt sin. And then by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit punched me in the heart. He said, you say I'm your God, but you're your God. Because you're doing whatever you want. And I had to have this moment of confrontation to say, God, help me not be my God. Be my God, Lord. I'm not. Help me be obedient to you. Help me follow you. Help me crucify this flesh of sin. Because Jesus, you've been crucified for me. I want to challenge us this morning. If we say we're a Christian, if we say we love God, if we say we follow God, is God your God? Is God the Lord? of your life. Because remember in this passage, it was all about who's the Lord. Is it Baal? Is it God? If it's Baal, follow Baal. All the false gods have been proven false. The one true God has been proven true. And so I want us to take a moment this morning and I want us to to check our hearts to really ask that question. Who is it? We're following. And maybe this morning you need to come to a point of repentance. Repentance is painful, but man, it's wonderful because it's this acknowledgement that we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And the wonderful thing about repentance is that God does not see us in our repentance and say, shame on you. He sees us in our repentance and he says, I love you. I want you. I desired you. Yet while you were still sinner, I died for you. Jesus' greatest joy is to give us the forgiveness of our sins that he purchased on the cross. And we need not be afraid of repenting to him, of confessing sin to him, of saying, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I'm stuck in this mess. I've followed my own God. I've become my own God. I've followed money. I've followed possession. I've followed attention. Whatever it is, God, rip rip that out of me and be my God. We need that this morning. And as we celebrate this morning, and it's fantastic, the greatest celebration we could have is genuine repentance and faith and turning to the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father, you know where every single one is here this morning. You know their hearts, you know what's going on in their lives. You know, the, the little gods we've been following. We need your spirit, God, to do in us what only he can do. Would you convict us of sin? Would you allow us to see, Jesus, that you're better than all the world offers? Would you allow us to see that you're worth it? would you allow us to be convinced because Jesus you walked out of the grave all of those years ago that you are God and because you walked out of the grave we too walk out of the grave through faith in you we walk out of the spiritual grave today and one day we'll walk out of the physical grave as well God we need you trust you. Thank you for your grace. 
Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that when you see us in our mess, you don't pour your wrath out upon us. But instead, you poured your wrath out on your son so that we could receive forgiveness and newness in his name. We love you today. Lead us today. Glorify yourself once again in our midst today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.